Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Hi and welcome to this week's Realty Talk show, the flagship of the new and expanded Property Hub, your home for property investment insights, inspiration and stories from Australia's top property experts, investors, leaders and analysts, which is all done in collaboration with Apiro Marketing and DM Media, Australia's largest independent podcast network, which is part of Nova FM. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and we've got another very interesting show in store for you this week. To get things underway, I interviewed Jessica Cannon from Grace Lawyers to discuss your duty of disclosure when it comes to selling a unit. Do you need to disclose a neighbour from hell to potential buyers? Well, you'll be very surprised by the answer that could prove very costly. Given the considerable risks involved with building a home at the moment, how can you overcome uncontrollable time and cost construction challenges to build more affordable properties? Well, the solution may be found in 3D printed properties and Armoured Mayhill from Leighton enlightens you on all of the benefits. And to round out the show, my partner in crime, Kevin Turner, jumps back in the chair to interview Cherie Hay from Home AU to help you choose the best selling agent because the wrong agent could cost you thousands. And before we get into it, make sure you don't miss another episode of Realty Talk by subscribing to Property Hub on your favourite podcast player, where you'll get two powerful episodes of both Realty Talk as well as the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. And make sure that you also sign up on the realty.com.au homepage, where you'll also get a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested, just for making the effort. We've got lots to unpack, so let's get on with the show. If you're selling a unit in a strata or body corporate that has the proverbial neighbour from hell living nearby, what obligation do you have, if any, to let potential buyers know? you may be surprised by the answer. So to dig into the detail of this interesting situation, we're joined by Body Corporate Litigation Specialist Solicitor, Jessica Cannon, who's a partner with Grace Lawyers on the Gold Coast. So welcome to Realty Talk, Jessica. Thank you, Bushy, pleasure to be here. Now, I, I love the uh, blog that uh, Grace wrote on this recently. It's a very interesting exercise, but uh, I'd love for you to sort of set the scene for us in relation sure. to a strata sale contract disclosure by giving us a bit of a rundown of a WA case involving mm. David from Hell in terms of what was the situation and what was the outcome of the case. Sure, not a problem. Look, and, and from the outset, it was definitely an interesting decision. Um, it was one based in, in Western Australia, so it does apply with those Western Australia laws. Um, but ultimately, and, and to paint you a picture, what you had in that scenario was an owner and an occupier of a lot within a strata building that ultimately was causing a nuisance. Um, and when I say nuisance, I'm talking about very um, anti-social behaviours, making a lot of noise, making a lot of ruckus, banging on doors with hammers. There were restraint type orders. There were peace and good behaviour type orders. Things had really escalated over a number of years with this particular owner within this lot. 
Now, interestingly enough, though, Bushy, this Western Australia decision actually didn't have this particular owner whose name is Mr. Pratt listed as a party. It more so dealt with lot six. Now, lot six was the lot that was immediately below Mr. Um, Pratt's lot. And that lot was originally owned by a lady named Sarah. Now, Sarah had obviously, being immediately below uh, Mr. Pratt's lot, endured a lot of this nuisance, endured a lot of the, the noise and the behaviour, especially when we're talking about banging hammers and the like going on. Yep. Um, she ultimately decided in 2015, I've had enough, let's throw this lot up for sale. And she sold to a gentleman called Henry. Now, Henry came into the scheme very unbeknownst to him about Mr. Pratt and, and what the court described as antisocial behaviour. Wow. And Henry quickly learned about how Mr. Pratt behaved, how he conducted himself, and immediately thought, hang on a minute, I just purchased a lot and none of this was disclosed to me in my purchase contract or sale contract and I've walked into something thinking this is my new home this is a great investment and actually I'm not getting that from this sale so Henry ultimately decided to file supreme court proceedings against Sarah and the basis of it was that in in, in Western Australia in WA um, sellers have an obligation to disclose any material information which goes to the use um, and enjoyment of both common property, but also the lot. So what Henry argued to the Supreme Court was ultimately that Sarah, as the seller, failed to disclose to him Mr. Pratt. And here's what the court described, antisocial behaviour, his nuisance, his noise that he was causing. Oh. Now, Henry ultimately asked the court to rescind his contract of sale with Sarah and give him an order of compensation to essentially place him back in the position he would have been if he didn't proceed with this contract. Now, the, the really, I guess, surprising part of this is um, twofold. The, the, the court did agree and they did ultimately make the orders in, in, in Henry's favour and they rescinded that contract and they ordered compensation. But more importantly, the courts expressed a real displeasure with the fact that they had two parties ultimately engaging in years of litigation, uh, very costly litigation, about really conduct and behaviour that related to a third party. And it was interesting to see the flow on effects of a decision like this in an entirely different state um, to what I operate in and seeing how you can have that nuisance um, owner or occupier, as you described it, that neighbour from hell, and seeing that they are not listed as a party to this. They're not the ones that are ultimately having a, a cause of action or legal recourse brought against them. It's a seller and a buyer that's ultimately having this argument on front of it. So it was very interesting in that sense. It was interesting um, from the court's perspective in their reasonings to, to, to illustrate their dismay, their displeasure with ultimately um, Mr Pratt not being listed as a party, but it can show especially in those WA contracts, the implications of that obligation of a seller to disclose material going to the use and enjoyment of common property, but also the use and enjoyment of a lot. Yeah, very interesting. Well, from a sort of contract contractual disclosure perspective, then, does a, mm. a similar obligation apply in Queensland and other states, as you're aware? 
Sure. Look, um, in Queensland, not as express as what they have in, in the WA regulations. It's very interesting as a practitioner doesn't operate in WA that there is that um, express obligation about disclosing information to the use of common property, but also to the use of the lot. In Queensland, all we really have is implied statutory warranties in the Body Corporate and Community Management Act that give a broad type of obligation on a seller to disclose, but nothing which is express or, or as I guess clear as what we've found in this decision in, in Western Australia. Um, there is also in Queensland, ultimately the ability for any party to a sales contract to put in special conditions as they see fit. Is it usual in my experience to see this type of special condition built into Queensland contracts? No, Bushy, not, not, not that I've seen. Interesting, well, apart from those special conditions, uh... Uh, can strata uh, unit sellers, buyers and body corporates uh, protect themselves and, and other means uh, from the impacts of bad neighbours or, or such? And if so, how? Yeah, look, it, that's a really good question. Um, from a buyer's perspective, Bushy, I see in Queensland a real underuse of comprehensive body corporate record searches. So there is the ability in Queensland to have a, a due diligence condition built into your contract of sale. It would usually take the form of a special condition. And ultimately what the buyer is saying there is they're not just satisfied with the, the information contained within the disclosure statement. They want to take a deep dive into this body corporate. What am I buying into? Do I have any any nuisance owners? Do I have any building defects? What is it that's beyond the disclosure statement realms? Um, so in Queensland, buyers should utilise that ability and there's companies out there that will go do a comprehensive body corporate record search and they will look at about six years of minutes. Have we got a caretaking dispute? Have we got a building defects? Are we leaking anywhere? Do we have a functioning committee here? Do we have any disputes between owners? So but from a buyer's perspective, that mechanism, that avenue is, is a really worthwhile one to go down and one that's very underutilised in, in the Queensland sector. Yeah. From a body corporate's viewpoint, and I think this is what the court in the Supreme Court was alluding to, there is mechanisms to hold nuisance owners accountable. It is just, um, and, and frustratingly enough in Queensland, a very long and drawn out process. Ultimately, you have to issue bylaw contravention notices, you have to take it to the commissioner's office, which could take anywhere between six to 12 months. And then you've got to try and look at some enforcement action as well on top of that. So there is recourse there. It's, it's ultimately calling upon a group of volunteer committee members to have the, the fight in them to go down that process. And it's an unreasonable expectation in my mind that owners, the other owners have to foot the bill associated with going down that path. Yeah, very good thoughts. So uh, in your view then, what changes are needed to better protect affected parties from this potential type of predicament? Mm. Look, I think in Queensland, we need more teeth. Ultimately, the process is too long. We could be looking at a two-year period um, before we even see something of teeth. And when I'm saying something of teeth, 
Um, the Commissioner's Office is very unique to Queensland. It's fantastic that we have a, a, a department within the government that can exclusively hear strata-related disputes. Yeah. Um, what you get out of that is an order saying that the person is a nuisance. And, and similar to Mr. Pratt, where he had quite a, a group of orders made against him, there are some persons out there that won't listen and, and further enforcement action has to be taken. In Queensland, I think what we need to see is a real monetary fine penalty that comes into play that holds people accountable to this type of behaviour. I don't think it's fair nor reasonable for other owners to have to foot a bill to ask somebody to comply with very basic community standards and principles. Um, I also think that Queensland specifically should be looking at having the ability to ultimately evict people from strata titles. It's it's very well known in Queensland that some people just aren't suited to living in a community title scheme. Yet we're having to deal with that and go through these long processes, these costly processes, where there could be the imposition of monetary fines, the ability to evict, which ultimately sees that that very, very small minority removed from the situation and, and the vast majority of owners being able to protect their property rights and have that harmonious living which most people want to enjoy in their homes. Yeah, of course. Look, uh, some very interesting observations and, and thoughts there, uh, Jessica. I really want to thank you for uh, giving us these eye-opening uh, insights and thanks for your time on the show today. Not a problem at all, Bushy. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Well, it's obvious from our discussion today that uh, what we continue to learn in our increasingly litigious property environment is that you need to consider every conceivable risk when both buying and selling property and have contingencies in place to cover them. So if you need to better understand your rights and responsibilities when it comes to property and ensure that you have the right contractual protections in place, reach out to Jessica and the experienced team at gracelawyers.com.au. You're watching the Property Hubs Realty Talk, your go-to place for all things property. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Hi and welcome. Now, how can you overcome all of the current uncontrollable time and cost construction challenges to build more affordable properties that are also better for the planet? In a recent show, we opened your eyes to the 3D printing building revolution. And to continue our dive into this fascinating and groundbreaking opportunity, we joined again the concluding part of our feature by Arvid Mahel, the co-founder and CEO of world-leading Australian 3D printing building and construction company, Luton. So welcome back to the show, Ahmed. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Right, uh, Ahmed, sort of to get into the nitty gritties of this subject, how are 3D printed houses actually produced? Well, it starts from the blueprint. It gets digitized with every detail of the house. It becomes a computer program and then it get fed into a robotic system that will lay layers upon layers of concrete 
It's all well counted for. The walls are optimized and they weigh less, but they are significantly four to five times stronger than normal walls that we have and also more durable. So uh, it goes from your blueprint, as simple as that. And that's what we tell. And uh, I'll direct your listeners to go to uh, a page on our website called The Geodes, where we show how simple is that and how much material you're going to need for each house. It's an exact formula. It wouldn't take more. It wouldn't take less. And then... By in three days, let's say a 200 square meter house, the printer would just keep printing, doing its thing. Um, in three days, you got your house and it's ready for other trades to come in. Now, we don't make other trades obsolete, we make the jobs more efficient. So, the sparky or the electrician will come, he doesn't have to figure anything, it's already been figured out beforehand. On site, no one should be cutting or drilling or make any noise. So we reduce the noise there. We reduce the traffic to the, to, the, to the construction site. And the time, we made it into a dismal fraction of what other projects take for. Once you're all, all the trades are gone, are come the roof, which were all considered. And when I say it prints, we're talking about 100 micron accuracy, better than a hot surgeon. And way more accurate than heart surgeon, actually. And then you got, in a week, a fully functional house. That's how it works. That's uh, absolutely incredible. A, uh, a full house in a week. And, you know, as, a, as an ex-architect, Ahmed, uh, you know, the, uh, from what I understand of 3D printing, uh, the only limits are your imagination when it comes to the uh, design side of the equation. So very exciting from that perspective. So tell, tell us how, how does 3D printing construction compare? Uh, you've mentioned time. What about waste, cost, and the impact on our planet? Well, the waste is a big thing because we, everything is calculated. For concrete to behave in that manner, it has to be an exact formula where people need to be trained. There's no room for someone to cheat or to use cheaper alternative or whatever. So that's a safeguard. That's the first quality control you got. The second thing, as an architect, you know how much it costs to do formworks, to do just a small curve. Here you can have a house that's full of zigzags and secret rooms and playground shapes for, for your grand-grandkids, if you will, um, <laughs> at no extra cost at all. So the same wall behind you, if we were to pour it with normal concrete or brick and mortar, let's say, um, I could, if I could tell it's 2.3 2. Uh, meters wide and 3 high, so we say 6 tons at least. Uh, when we 3D print it, we make it stronger, like it has been ballistically tested, by the way. And yeah. we'll come to that in a second. But also significantly less in the weight, so there is less material used from six tons to 1.4 tons. So that's the kind of freedom 3D printing give you. Uh, and that helps us to reduce our dependence. That's the thing on, on certain polluters, such as cement, which is the biggest culprit that people are always angry about. Yep. So whether you're a moderate who wants to use cement in moderation in a very optimized manner, where it's well calculated, there's no waste, 
So then we wouldn't need as much cement. Or you are someone who just wants cement out of the equation. We got geopolymers, we got clay, we got all sort of other materials. They'll give you the exact same finish and the same strength. And that's, that, 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 that's, that's the biggest benefit. And there is no code of compliance that 3D printing wouldn't be able to achieve. We just always supersede, surpass actually, what is in the code. Uh, that is one of the biggest benefits. So we can look at it in two segments. One, with the materials itself, we can have um, zero carbon or carbon sink kind of uh, material that yep. has been 3D printed. And at Luton, the one that's certified and we know we can do buildings with right now in Australia has already reduced cement significantly. We use supplementary cementitious materials. Um, so it's already eco-friendly, way more than any government or international targets to make people feel at ease here. And uh, the other thing is the construction site footprint itself. Whether it's a noise, you won't have to worry if, we, if this is rolled out about your neighbor complaining about your development because it's going to be noisy. When you see the printer doing the job day and night without any noise, there's yeah. no need for hammers or uh, and, and all kind of other um, noise that uh, generated by traditional construction sites. Uh, the trades will work in smoothly and they don't have to spend longer time. So these are major benefits. So to the planet as well, 3D printing help us because it's not just about housing and residential. We're talking infrastructure. Imagine the price cuts to the infrastructure projects. And they are the biggest culprit, by the way, when it comes to cement. It's not uh, the residential housing. Um, it will help us also to print certain shapes to basically control the damage we've done to the planet. Like when we go with the barrier reef, we can build certain shapes. There, has been, there are some initial results that shows that helps the reef to kind of... Um, regenerate and stop the bleaching, for example. And this has been tried in multiple countries now. So uh, the, the benefits, and here's the thing, because it's from nature, I think we haven't even scratched the surface of the benefits from this. You want to see who's the first 3D printer? Look at any cocoon, how the cocoon came about, layer by layer. And that's the, that, that's the whole thing here. Yeah, it's very exciting. How does it compare cost-wise? I mean, it's probably early days because the the sort of critical mass is not there, but uh, have you done any comparisons uh, cost-wise between this and normal construction? That is true. So we've done the cost the cost analysis, and at Luton, the economic case of this has been at the forefront of our thinking. Uh, so we're mostly engineers, but we thought a lot about how we can, can, how can we make it similar to why the duct tape telephone is better than 100 persons changing the, uh, in the telephone exchange, for example. Yeah. Um, or, um, and and, and that we, I think, I believe we're one of the first in the world to crack that formula where it's really cheaper uh, per square meter or per square than traditional housing. 
Now that that's speaking of when we do just the bones of the house. But as we know, the house has more to it than just the bones of it. Uh, from there on, it depends on the choices of. But I'll say, up to seventy percent, we can reduce it. Uh, I'm sure folks in the Northern Territory, West Australia, South Australia, saw the numbers and they know that, that that's why we're getting these projects. They know that this is gonna happen. And it's due to just reducing that crazy supply chain, but also to develop our own, um, our own mixture, which is now being licensed in the USA and in multiple Asian countries. Uh, they recognize that we do things better here. Um, and um, being Australian made has a big value overseas. You know, people know what that means. Yeah, um, I t- totally agree. Yeah, it's really exciting from where I, I sit, Ahmed, because, uh, you know, we've got the likes of the NT government getting on board, uh, you know, the sort of the uh, isolated housing uh, and Indigenous uh, communities. Uh, this sort of option is just going to be uh, groundbreaking and, and life-changing as far as that goes. So, look, I, I really want to thank you again for opening our eyes to this uh, very innovative construction opportunity, Ahmed, and thanks again for joining us on the show today. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ahmed. Well, it just goes to show that where there's a will, there's always a better way. So if 3D printed construction has captured your interest and you want to know more, reach out to Ahmed and his team at luton3d.com. That's L-U-Y-T-E-N-3-D.com. Stay with us for more here on Realty Talk. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. KnowHow has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. When it comes time to sell a property, most people consider the most important decision that they need to make is the list price or how to market it or maybe the method of sale, whether it should be auction or private treaty. Well, if that's what you think, I have to tell you, you're wrong. These decisions need to be made, of course, but the first and most important decision is the agent that you're going to employ. Choose the wrong agent and it could cost you thousands of dollars. So what sort of agent do you really need? Well, let's ask one of Melbourne's leading real estate agents, Mornington Peninsula-based Cherie Hay. Cherie, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hey, the, the market's definitely cooling, as I sort of indicated in the open there, and agents no doubt having to work a little bit harder than they used to. So in that environment, Cherie, what are you seeing? What are the dangers for sellers when that happens? So, yeah, you're correct in that the buyers are really earning their money these days. Uh, We're out of the gold rush of that period of, you know, COVID where everything was flying and, you know, deals were just landing in our laps. So what I'm finding is because, you know, the the limited 
number of buyers or the decrease of buyers has occurred. Um, and, you know, you might only have two or three genuine buyers in that mix. So what I find is agents are taking that first offer and then, you know, running to the vendor and, you know, advising them for, for them to take it. And they're, they're basing it on the change in the market. My opinion on the market is, yes, the market has shifted, but I feel the only thing that has predominantly changed is the volume of buyers that are coming. And now that there is a little bit more stock on the market and there's more um, uh, there's more choice, you know, buyers are no longer paying two and three hundred over the asking prices, which is what we experienced on the peninsula. So has the market dropped twenty percent, like everybody's predicting and and the media is suggesting? Maybe, but maybe not. And I think that you know, obviously, as negotiators, it's still our job to negotiate the highest possible price, not just the first offer that we get. Yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma, and I'll dig a little bit deeper on that. But it's interesting to hear you say the dynamics of the market and how they've changed. Um, you know, I, I do recall the time when, you know, we'd have an open home and there'd be absolutely no buyers and it becomes really difficult to have two or three in some ways. It's it's not as strong as it used to be, but it's still a bit of a luxury. Hey, can, can I just ask you, Cherie, uh, the, the next point, of course, m- most people only ever sell or buy a property once or twice in their lifetime. So it's, it's not something that they're used to doing. But as agents, you know, you're, you're doing this all the time. It's something you become very used to and very comfortable with. So how does a seller know that the advice they're getting is the right advice? Because they've got to take advice from someone. Well, look, Kevin, the, the truth is you don't. You know, as as a, as a, a home seller, as a vendor, you know, how do you know? Well, actually, you don't until you use them because at the end of the day, we're salespeople. We're going to fly you to the moon and back. We're going to get you a million bucks and we're going to do it for free. So I guess, you know, the, the caution in that for a vendor is to really, when you're interviewing that person, there's a few questions that I say to a lot of my vendors, even if they don't choose me, and that is when you're interviewing somebody, you know, obviously we're salespeople, we're going to make everything smell like roses. We're, that's what we're paid to do, to paint pictures. But when you're, they're sitting in your lounge room, the few things that I would ask them to ask themselves is, do I feel like I can work with this person? Do I feel like, you know, I like them? And Because you're going to be working very closely together during the, the process of the campaign. And most importantly, do I feel that I can trust this person? Do I feel that this person actually has my best interest at heart? And what I mean by that is, yes, we are in a changing market and many different opinions of that change. The, the buyer has been educated to believe that they hold all the, the trump cards, where in actual fact the vendor still does. So when when the chips are turned, is that agent going to have your best interest at heart and fight for every last dollar for you? And that's probably my best explanation on that. So that that's a feeling you get. How can you measure that, though, Shuri? I mean, uh, as you said, agents are really good at selling themselves. Cut that away. How can you test someone's negotiation ability? Okay, well, one of the first things is um, to look for is, you know, when, when we talk about like how much, how much, that statement, you know, how much can you get me and how much will you charge me? So I guess if there, you know, a, a, a clue to that is, you know, if somebody, an agent's not able to negotiate their fee, like, you know, if they're prepared to just, you know, drop their fee and give you, I'll do it for 1% or 1.5%, that could be a good, 
a good indicator that they're unable to, if they can't negotiate for themselves, how are they going to negotiate the best possible price for you? So maybe, you know, that would be an area of caution. That, that, that's a very good uh, suggestion. So I guess in testing that, if you, if you feel comfortable with the person, you could say to them, you know, what's your fee and is it negotiable? Correct. And then I guess based on, you know, based on, and when we talk about commission breadth, like, and that's a statement in, in the real estate world, you know, if, you know, and that's desperate for a sale. And so what that means is if, you know, they're prepared to easily drop their fee willingly and, and quickly, well, how quickly are they going to uh, drop your, your, your price? or, you know, accept a lower price from, you know, a buyer. Because what we're afraid of is agents is pushing the buyer because we're afraid that they, they might walk away. Or, like, you know, the biggest test is, is you know, asking for more money because they can all, always say no. And you do quite quickly determine whether or not they're the right buyer for your property or not. How important is marketing in your view? And is that something that you would suggest people should look for in an agent? Yeah, definitely. Marketing is is paramount because how you how you launch in the, the the onset in the very beginning is is going to be determine the success of the campaign. So in that process, we take a lot of time in setting up and, and preparing for for market, and that would be you know advising uh, um, styling tips and and going into the home and just making sure that they're, they're photo ready. We're at every photo shoot to make sure every home has got a unique feature that it is up to us to, to, to find that hero shot and, and to really hone in on, you know, that the key selling features of that property and, and to showcase that to, to the world when we, we go to market. So the setting up is, is paramount because even even if a property is empty, like you know, there is some area of glory that you can that you can highlight and showcase in that house. So, as an agent, when I walk into a property, like I'm already scanning the room for, for items that, and and things that I know will pull on somebody's heartstrings. And it's it's our job as agents to make sure we get that marketing right, because when we go to market, what we're essentially doing is we're establishing what a buyer is prepared to pay for that property and that's what going to market means putting that home to market so it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that we've done that in its best possible light. Mm. Final question Cherie just to sum up if you could um, what, what are the best questions that a, a potential seller can can ask an agent before they appoint them? I guess you go through the presentation like every agency and agent will have their own form of presentation of, of you know what they can offer a, a, a seller and and you know how they you know what they they you know what their selling background is like the properties that they've sold they're all going to go through that I guess if I was a seller I would be sitting there and go after going through that process asking them you know what's their plan like what's their strategy because you've told me you're going to be able to get me this price so how do you how do you propose that we'll get to that level like what's that strategy you know real estate's like one big game of chess it's all about just moving pieces and making sure setting up the play setting up the next move and so you you success isn't isn't by accident it's it's by a well thought out plan so I would be asking that question to to find out you know how they, they plan to go about getting to that end result um, and asking them about their negotiation skills. I trained under a system years ago of Neil Gemman, the Gemman system, which was system of protection, ethics, um, and do no harm. 
And so in that process, um, when a part of our training was back then, it was 18 principles of negotiations. Like you want to know that that person you're hiring is actually a good negotiator and is able to negotiate the best possible price. And do you have a plan for if there is only one buyer, how could you make sure that you get the most amount of money, whether there's one or two buyers in that scenario? Are you going to be fighting for every last dollar for me? Sheree, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. All the best. You're in a very exciting part of the world in Melbourne, but uh, it's been great to share some time with you today. So thank you oh, and all the best for, for the, the future. Invite. Look forward to speaking again. Thanks, Kevin. Bye-bye. Now, before I leave you, here's a final thought from me. Given how litigious Australia is becoming and the half a million dollars in conversation that the seller had to fork out for not disclosing the neighbour from hell the purchase from the WA case we spoke about today, I'd be very carefully checking the wording in your purchase contracts to ensure they don't contain a clause that says something along the lines of the seller doesn't know of anything which will materially affect the buyer's use or enjoyment of the property. If it does, you have a very clear duty of care to disclose anything that will affect potential buyers. So make sure your solicitor or conveyancer reviews your purchase contracts for these implied warranties. And let me reiterate, if you're a seller, be sure to, to disclose anything that may materially affect a buyer's enjoyment of your property. And if you're a buyer, include a due diligence clause in the contract that allows you to peruse body corporate or strata records, if it's a unit or apartment, to see if there's anything that could be an issue. That's more food for thought. And that brings us to the close for this week's show. Another big thanks to our special guests, Jessica Cannon, Armand Mayhill, and Shereen May. And to make sure you don't miss another episode of your trusted voice for all things property, subscribe to our Property Hub on your favourite podcast player now, where you'll also enjoy the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. And make sure you sign up on the realty.com.au homepage to get a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested. And while you're there, check out one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale, from over 7,000 agents nationally. Thanks again to realty.com.au, BMT Tax Depreciation, Apero Marketing and DM Media for their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance. Remember to always get invested in your knowledge before you get invested in your property. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 